So hello everybody. My name is Emma Skye and it's a real honor and a privilege to be in discussion today with Felix Maradiaga. So Felix, thank you so much for joining us on this webinar today. And on behalf of Yale and all the world follows, I want to tell you how delighted that we are that you were free and reunited with your wife, Berta, and your daughter, Alejandra. Thank you, Emma. It's an honor to be here. Thank you very much. And I'm so happy we can meet and talk about our experience. And thank you everyone for being aware of our situation and for all the support that you have given us. So Felix, you have just been released from jail after 611 days in captivity. Can you explain to us what on earth was it like? What did you do each day? What is it like to be in a Nicaraguan jail? Emma, um, once again, thank you very much. I'd like to begin by expressing my gratitude to this wonderful community. Uh, I see um, many of, uh, of my dear friends that are part of a bigger family that have been present. My wife, Berta, has been telling me how helpful this community have, has been to support uh, my family in, in times in which very few people understood and very few people listened about the situation in Nicaragua. So this uh, extraordinary network was very helpful to uh, uh, not only to, to tackle uh, the challenges of my uh, arrest, my captivity, but also to raise a voice about the situation uh, in Nicaragua. Uh, as you know, once I um, um, went back to Nicaragua in 2019, I spent about a year in the United States between 2018 and 2019. Um, uh, there was an arrest warrant against myself, but uh, an amnesty law was passed uh, at the beginning of 2019, allowing me to go back to Nicaragua and continue my pro-democracy and human rights uh, activism. At that time, since it was our second exile, uh, this is my third, my second exile, we decided that the family should stay here in the United States so I could go back uh, by myself and continue to build the uh, national unity movement uh, back in Nicaragua. Unfortunately, the return back in Nicaragua was very, very uh, complicated. Um, uh, I had to go basically underground for most of uh, the 2019. And uh, towards the end of 2020, I was placed in house arrest. And eventually, at the beginning of 2021, taken into a prison, the notorious Chipote prison, which is the maximum security prison in Nicaragua. I was arrested after uh, my appointment with the prosecutor's office, which I presented myself voluntarily. Uh, and outside of that uh, building, I was uh, severely beaten by the police, <clears throat> taken into captivity <clears throat> for the first, first 84 days of my arrest. I was not allowed a lawyer. I was not allowed a phone call. I was not allowed to have any contact with the outside world. Um, I was also in solitary confinement. When I went out of that first 84 days, I was allowed to have a 10 minute visit with a relative that explained me what was going on outside. And I, and I learned two very important things. First is that my family was okay in the US. 
and that my wife was becoming a relentless advocate uh, for my freedom and the freedom of other political prisoners. So I knew that she was a fighter. I knew that she is a fighter. And together with the wife of another political prisoner, Victoria Cárdenas, she was already traveling the world to explain the situation in Nicaragua and advocating for my freedom. But I also learned that the other presidential candidates had also been uh, uh, arrested. Emma, it was very tough, but I felt that I was never was alone. I felt that there was not only the voice of my wife, and of course, as a believer myself, I also rely on spirituality. So I knew that at a higher level, I also had uh, a God with me, but I knew that I had friends and family in many, many countries of the world that cared about what was happening. And at, at some point, this massive international movement and pressure was going to have a positive impact in, in our release. So thank you for that, Felix. Can you describe or share with us, you know, I don't think anyone on this call has actually been in jail before. So what was your daily routine? What time did you wake up? What did you do between when you woke up and when you went to sleep? Uh, a, a bit of background, the Chipote Police uh, uh, Detention Center, just by mentioning the name, everyone in Nicaragua will uh, will feel terrorized. It's a, um, a prison uh, originally built in 1931. It was then turned into a maximum security prison in 1934. Uh, so it, it has a, a profound uh, a symbolism in, in the worst of ways because many of the former uh, uh, political leaders across uh, uh, Nicaraguan history have been assassinated, disappeared, tortured. Uh, um, myself, as a political activist, worked very hard over the last 20 years in having the Chipotle prison closed because it's a monument to torture. It's a place where my father suffered a lot in the 1970s as a political prisoner during the Somoza dictatorship. So just the fact that you are there mentally is the first challenge because it's not a regular prison. It's a prison where many human rights activists and many uh, people have suffered torture, but also a, a prison that has a long list of, uh, of uh, uh, people who have been disappeared. Um, in our case, those of us who, who were trying to run for office, uh, this is a bit of background for, for the, uh, the, the fellows. Uh, in February of 2021, we signed an agreement, the five key uh, uh, representatives of various political movements to run a primary election for the opposition to pick the unified candidate. So we we're preparing ourselves for the primary and the five of us were arrested. Uh, one of them in house arrest and the other candidates were placed into a chipote. In terms of routine, the uh, place where I was, it was very hard for the first days to figure out when was morning, afternoon, night. It was solitary confinement, dark 24 seven, no contact at all with the outside world, no reading material, uh, very, very limited food. Uh, we had to be very careful about how to, um, about how to even consume water because we, we didn't have any drinking water from the tap inside the prison. So we had to rely on the prisoners even to give us drinking water. So the, the first day in my case, and this is only my personal experience because um, everyone had to address this challenge of the cell itself from a different perspective. I immediately got myself into 
into emergency mode. So I, I started to meditate a lot, started fasting. So limited food was not going to become a problem. Um, uh, exercise. And uh, um, I even developed, Emma, this sort of TED talk in my head in which I had a small demon in one of my shoulders and an angel in one of my shoulders. And I said, I will speak to the angels. I will not speak to my own demons because in, when you are placed in such a dark and extreme place, you tend to feel sort of anger, sadness, and having these conversations with your own self that cannot be very productive. So I would say I would talk to angels. I would have imaginary conversations with my wife, Berta, with my mother, with my daughter, with friends I met around the world. I would try to remember uh, uh, books, authors, uh, movies, and try to keep myself uh, mentally as strong as possible. So can you give us a sense, what was the size of the cell? Did you have a bathroom? Were you allowed books? Were you with anybody? Uh, for, the first, for the first three months, I was in solitary confinement and also in an area in which I was completely isolated. So I was not even aware of who else was there. So when I had the first visit, I, uh, the, the, uh, my surprise was to learn that it was not only my arrest, but the arrest of many other political leaders which completely shocked me because, of course, I, I knew that at some point I was going to be at Del Chipote because I was already in house arrest prior to that. So it was only a matter of time for me to go into a more extreme prison. But then I learned that even a sport journalists, student leaders, women activists, uh, leaders of the farmers movement. So everyone who had a voice against or Daniel Ortega uh, was in prison. So we started about eight of us in prison uh, uh, between June and July and towards the end uh, of 2021, about 60 people were arrested at El Chipote prison. There were two different types of cells. One that was very, very small that it was called a punishment cell. So um, we were placed there for for a short period of time, short periods of times, I was there about three times, uh, ten to fifteen days at the most, in a cell in which you can barely walk. There's only space, probably two square meters, so you only have a small hall to go to the bathroom. Uh, one thing that you cannot even call the, you know, a bed. Um, and and but I was later moved to a cell with uh, better conditions in the sense that we had more space about five meters long, three meters width wide, uh, with, with another, uh, with another uh, cellmate. However, we, we, we uh, uh, were kept uh, on the dark, even in that uh, bigger cell. What, I mean, what did you eat? What was the food like and how much weight did you lose? During the first six months, I lost 60 pounds. Um, most most of the uh, of the of the weight was due to to very limited food, but uh, uh, I decided to um, started a period of fasting and prayer, which also added to the accelerated weight loss, and it was a way to uh, not allowing the guards to exercise any authority about my body, because for the first few months they tried to use food as a way to break you. As a way to bribe you, we were we were asked to to film um, videos in which we acknowledged that we were being, and I'll get into the interrogations, 
Basically, they wanted to prove that I was a CIA agent, that I was a foreign agent, and that I had worked with foreign governments to overthrow the Somoza, the, the, the Ortega uh, regime. I confuse Somoza and Ortega because they're so much alike. Um, uh, and of course, it was completely ridiculous. I never uh, uh, um, confessed something that it, in, in any case was a complete lie. Uh, but they would try to use all these methods to break our soul. And as I, I have said before, they were not able to break our souls. So I wanted to be a step ahead. So for example, if they would give us limited food and they show with this very limited food, basically rice and beans, I would say, I'm not hungry. And they were like, you are not hungry. No, I'm not hungry. So if they wanted to limit our, our small times in another area, not even a patio, a small area where every two weeks we would get some small sunlight. I would refuse sometimes sunlight as well. And it was to make an argument that I would continue my nonviolent resistance even in those conditions. I knew it was a hard bet, but if you really send them this or signal, you know, to your uh, uh, those who have you in captivity, your torturers, that that they cannot really break you through bribe. So food can be a bribe. The smell of, of sunlight can be a, even water can be a bribe. But if you have control of your body and you get used to very small amounts of water, small amounts of food, at the end of the day, they know that they exercise no authority upon you. And, and, and I think that it worked. It worked well because after a few months, they gave up and they say, you know what? You can have as much as much water or food as uh, as, as you want. So they, they will give me as much rice as I wanted. So there was plenty of rice, <laughs> plenty of rice. Three times a day, sometimes during lunch, we had a decent lunch. It, it was the, uh, uh, the time for us to recover. And towards the end of our arrest, something really strange happened. And I like to stop on this because this was something interesting. We didn't have any information about what was going on outside. I would see my family every uh, 60 to 90 days for a few minutes with a guard right next to me and a, and a camera. So my family, two people from my family were allowed, mostly my sister, but uh, we were not comfortable to share information about politics or about the advocacy for my freedom, but prison conditions started to change. For example, we were allowed to have food from our home. So family could bring, for example, cereal, they could bring milk, they could bring some fruits. And we knew that that was, that was the result of, of, of massive pressure outside. And, and we became very hopeful because prison conditions uh, were really, really tough at the beginning. They were so tough that, uh, and this was probably the, the lowest moment of my arrest, that one of my dear, dear friends, General Hugo Torres, a former uh, friend of Daniel Ortega, uh, passed away. Uh, we never uh, uh, got a full report why, why uh, um, uh, he died. But one thing we know is that he never got medical attention. And that was uh, the lowest part of, of our arrest. So after the disease, and, and the very strange death of General Hugo Torres, former general of the Nicaraguan army, and a guy who was a war hero in the 70s. He uh, um, uh, um, fought for Ortega's release when Ortega was a young guy in prison and General Torres sacrificed a lot to get Ortega released in the 70s. And then we see this very close friend of Ortega in prison himself. For us, it was 
really, really surreal to see that, that this was going on. So when dictators start persecuting their own friends, things are in really, really, really bad, 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 bad shape. So when that happened, uh, many of, of, of the prisoners started to do a hunger strike. And due to the result of the hunger strike um, and uh, our families uh, asking for a proof of life, they finally show us in front of national TV. Uh, and that was a game changer after that. You know, when you were sentenced, you were sentenced to 13 years in jail for the alleged crime of conspiracy to undermine national integrity. Did you think you were going to serve the full 13 years? Uh, at, a, at a very um, intellectual level, I knew that 13 years was something hard to pull for Ortega because having... Uh, all presidential candidates and uh, uh, not only the candidates, but other political activists who are well known, it was uh, too much of a political cost for him, you know. So mentally, I knew that it was not a smart move for him. Uh, however, emotionally, um, you are there, isolated from the outside world, in constant interrogations, five, six uh, uh, times a day, the first 14 months, I was there for over 20 months, but the first 14 months we were interrogated five to six times a day, and they make sure in every interrogation that we will not be released anytime soon. Uh, in fact, they had this saying, of, <laughs> it, was, it was funny, but they said, not even the president of the United States will release you because they kept on insisting that I was a mercenary of American interest against the Sandinista regime. Um, I try not to pay pay attention, going back to the idea of talking to angels and not listening to the voices of demons. But but um, uh, I knew that, or I felt from a from a faith perspective that I was going to see the light soon. So, when did you come to realize that you were going to be released, and why were you released? Two things. First is that dictators only release uh, political prisoners when they have to. They don't do it because they want to. So uh, dictators ideally would like to disappear their opposition completely. But when they release political prisoners, it's because it doesn't make any political sense for, for them. Uh, I received a message from Berta around, uh, around July or August last year in which he said, if someone puts a paper in front of you um, about uh, the fact that you may be extradited um, or put into exile, um, just sign the paper. Don't say that you're gonna stay behind because this is my sister talking to me saying, "I Berta knows you and she knows that you'd like to stay behind until the last prisoner is released. But Berta says that she needs you, that Alejandra needs you, that you've been fighting a lot it's time to be back home. So if they're going to, to release you, um, just say yes, you know? And I, I just felt in shock because I said, oh my God, she's reading my mind. You know, I had this, I was already still in the political activist mode saying I will not be, I, I will not leave the country until the last prisoner is released. But, but in a way it signaled that something was happening outside. 
Uh, then on February 9th, we were having a regular day, just the routine. Every day is just like every other day. The guards came to us and told us the unexpected, like we're, you're moving to another cell. They always kept us in the dark, telling us that we were going to be moved to another prison. Then we were moved from that cell immediately into a bus, handcuffed with our heads looking down. And the bus, uh, 40 minutes later, arrived at the Manawa airport. At that time, when we heard the, the um, planes and the tarmac, we knew that we were going to be expelled from the country. We uh, got down from the bus, and a group of American diplomats told us, um, are you willing to come to the United States? We need to hear that response out loud. I remember my commitment to Verda, and I said, yes. <laughs> so I got on the plane. We were all quiet. And this American diplomat, who happened to be my, my friend from one of these you know, networks, said, we need, we need to remain uh, 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 quiet. We took off sang the national anthem, prayed, and a few hours later, I was hugging my, my wife and daughter. It's amazing. And as you've got Berta sitting next to you, Berta, I want to ask you, when did you realize that Felix was coming, gonna, coming to see you? You know, um, we, family members in Nicaragua particularly had a lot of expectation about the release. And during the last year, we have been you know, being told that they were going to be releasing after the elections, then after the, the local elections, and then in the inauguration day. So um, everybody was very anxious about that. And Felix all, always sent me this message of uh, be aware that this can take long. You have to get ready for two more years. If something happens before, that's great, but just be aware that, you know, you have to be ready to um, face this reality. So I was, uh, nobody knew that something like this was going to happen. In our case with Victoria Cárdenas, in our international advocacy, we mentioned this to different governments and particularly to the State Department here in the U.S. because Daniel Ortega, in his inauguration day after he stole the election, mentioned that these people that were in prison were not Nicaraguans and that, you know, they have this Yankees imperialista thing going on in their minds. And they say like, they should go to the U.S. because they don't belong to this country. So we took that um, statement of Ortega and we, we, we exposed this to different governments and saying, look, this is an opportunity. Um, and particularly to the U.S., we mentioned this, like you should tell Daniel Ortega to let the prisoner come to the U.S. So, you know, we, we have discussed this idea, but we never thought that it was going to happen. So on February 9th, that was the day they were released, um, you know, we, I woke up in the morning um, to get ready for Alejandro to go to school. And, I, and around 6 a.m. in the morning, I received a phone call for someone from the State Department saying, um, Berta, I'm calling you to let you know that right now your husband, together with 221 political prisoners from Nicaragua, are going to are, are flying um, to come to Washington, D.C. So that was the way I received the news, of course. I was <laughs> screaming and just, um, you know, thanking God for, for this miracle. And, you know, 
after that moment, I, I had to call back to ask, you know, where were they going to land? And if I should get a plane and go to Washington, which I did with Alejandra. And it was just so surreal. And, and we, you know, you enter to this stage of not really understanding what is happening, but just like blowing with the situation. And yeah, so, so anyone, anyone knew about it. It was a surprise. No, it's, it's amazing. Felix, this is not the first time in your life that you've been forced out of Nicaragua. Can you take us back to when you were a child? Can you describe your childhood and how you yourself became a, a child refugee? Nicaragua experienced uh, uh, political turmoil and civil war in the late 1970s, 1980s. So by mid, mid 1980s, my family, as many other families in Nicaragua, had been separated, expropriated due to the civil war. So my mother made the most difficult decision a mother can make. When I was 12 years old, she didn't want me to, to, to suffer civil war. And uh, the, the issue of child soldiers was a big problem back in the 1980s in Central America. So she arranged for me to come to the United States with a group of Central Americans. Um, and I became part of the first wave of unaccompanied minors that arrived to the United States uh, in uh, towards the uh, between 1987, 1988. I crossed the river between Mexico and the United States and spent time at, the, at a refugee center in a small town called Harlingen, Texas. Then I, uh, uh, I, I was placed with foster parents in, in Miami. I was there for less than two years because in 1990, due to the first democratic elections and the peace agreements, a, a democratic transition process started in Nicaragua. So my family and I decided that I should go back to Nicaragua as soon as possible. So I went back to Nicaragua in 1990. And as a, as a teenager, I immediately started to work in post-conflict reconstruction first in charge of the uh, a, a, a national uh, youth movement uh, closely linked to the to the Catholic youth. Um, went to college and uh, uh, right after college, I was offered this very, very strange job for a recently graduated college student. I was asked to become the national director of combatant reintegration, a job that I no nobody wanted at that time because as much as it had a very fancy title. I had to be placed in, uh, in, in conflict areas, uh, deep in the jungles of Nicaragua, work with former combatants in their uh, uh, socioeconomic reintegration. So I spent about 10 years doing that in, 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 in Nicaragua. Later, I came to the United States to pursue graduate school. And, and, uh, and of course, the Yellow Fellows Program was a, a life-changing experience. So my, my, my first state, uh, phase of my life uh, as, a, as a refugee and as someone who grew up in, in northern Nicaragua, which is the part where most of the work took place, was deeply personal for me. So my involvement in, in peace building and my involvement in, in, in uh, nonviolence uh, uh, non uh, is something that is precisely, Emma, related to that experience as a refugee.
And what made you decide that you were really going to get involved in politics and then run to be president of Nicaragua? It's a funny question because ever since I remember my friends, even at Yale, said that I should run for office. But but I, I, when I, you know you hear that from you know for friends saying oh, that you, you you would be a great you know politician, but um, uh, my involvement as a as a human rights activist uh, and also as an entrepreneur because it, uh, some of my 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 uh, friends at Yale Fellow remember that I always talked about the importance of uh, having in in the case of our countries having a source of income not linked. Or dependent to government or agencies, so I always work in the private sector in one side, and in the other side, trying to devote my 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 time to my activism, because the issue of conflict of interest in these type of regimes is very very complicated. So, I never thought of myself as a classical politician in terms of being full time in, in in politics. But going back to your question, I think that I think that the line between a human rights defender. And a politician in countries such as ours is a very thin line because human rights are very political. The rights of those people who are persecuted, the rights of journalists, the rights of the farmers movement, which is something that is deeply close to my heart, something that is deeply political. So when this very impressive movement finally went to the streets in, uh, in, in uh, April 2018 and the blue and white, blue and white are the colors of our flag. So the blue and white national unity movement, which is the largest umbrella organization in the country, asked me to represent them as a candidate in the primaries. For me, it was very emotional because I was not represented a political party. The, uh, the agreements of the opposition decided that classical traditional political parties will allow the civil uh, rights movement to have a representative in that primary. So for me, it was an honor to be a voice of those that typically would not have a voice in a primary election. Uh, I think that this is something that is not unique of Nicaragua. I see many, many faces, precisely in this call of people that may not think themselves of a politicians in the classical sense, but by working towards human rights and representing the interests of groups that are underrepresented, we are being political, Emma. Your political activism led to you being jailed. It's now led to you being expelled from your country, your passport removed. What hope do you have for Nicaragua? If you get involved in this type of, of uh, missions, you, you need to be uh, a permanent optimist. You need to be an idealist. Uh, if if we tackle these challenges from a uh, a mental uh, perspective, from a public policy perspective, I'll be uh, uh, outside of Nicaragua many many years ago. You know, you, you have to be crazy in a positive way. You know? and I'm crazy in love in my country. I'm crazy in love in a country because there are countries in the world that that produce more history than the history that we can consume. You know, Nicaragua might be a small country, a complicated one, but it's the country that that where I want my dreams to be fulfilled. And the fact that I have been expelled from that country several times, first as a refugee, later again, when I was persecuted in 2018 and placed an arrest warrant, um, uh, brings me to a very important reflection. At least I have a voice. 
an international one. I have people like you who can listen about the situation in Nicaragua. So I turn my personal journey as an opportunity or as a platform to tell the story of 7 million people that do not have the chance to go to CNN, BBC, uh, mm -hmm. Yale University. So I don't, I don't mm -hmm. see this as an individual experience. I like to see this as an opportunity to place the, the, the struggle, the dreams, the ambitions of many, many Nicaraguans that simply want to live in peace. And then brings me to my next point. Emma, when I talk about Nicaraguans, I talk about Sandinistas as well. I talk about those who tortured me. I talked about those who put my father in prison, to put me in prison. They also have children, and their children deserve to live in peace. And that has been always my message. It's very hard because you get beaten by the, both physically uh, and journalistically as well, by the extremes, because they don't get the point. They don't get the point that we simply want a country of tolerance where human dignity is what moved us. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's something so fundamental, so primary, that it might take time. But I'm hopeful, Emma, because I think that at the end of the day, that's the only road that not only Nicaragua is the only road for humanity. Otherwise, we will destroy this world that we call home. If each of us tries to become a tribe, trying to fight for what we believe, we will destroy each other. So I might not be so popular right now uh, uh, um, because polarization is, is, is becoming a huge problem in Nicaragua and in the world around, but we need voices that become unharmed in terms of our emotions because otherwise we become that that we hate you know um, and that that's what i've been trying to do and that's what i will continue to do emma well felix you're a very brave man you're an inspiration to all of us and it is great to hear your voice really carrying the message of hope for nicaragua I want to open up now to questions from the world follows. So if you raise your hand in the hand bar and I will call on you. So the first question comes from Lorna, who's been one of your greatest advocates. Lorna. Thank you, Emma. And um, uh, it, it more, it, more than a question, it's an, it's an ask. So again, as a uh, Berta and Felix's unofficial PR and chief, chief supporter um, age department, um, <laughs> a few asks. Um, and by the way, the day after Felix arrived, we had a conversation and my first question was, how are you physically, mentally, what do you need? Before anything else, I was like, how are you? And he said, my eyes bothering me, it's been bothering me, I'm a little worried. And I, I, I wrote to a few friends, including Allison Squires, who's not on the call because she's at a doctor's appointment right now. But I just want to say this, this group is extraordinary. Allison jumped, you know, head first. We now have medical support for 20 Nicaraguans that were on that plane from the 222 who are all in South Florida for eye medical checkups and full checkups. Felix is the first one on the list. And he'll be able to do that next week at Bascom Palmer and Jackson Memorial. That was that was Allison, and 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 I emailed several people. And she like you know just I have to mention her because that was Herculean, and it was it's we're still on emails daily since the day after Felix arrived. I also re uh, reached out to Nicola Harrington, who I think is on the call. I see you there, Nicola, and I say Felix needs. And this is an, an ask for the group, by the way. Felix is looking for what he's going to do next. 
He wants to brainstorm with people he respects, he likes, he, uh, you know, his peers. And so I welcome you to join that group and um, brainstorming, you know, where, where he could end up. He wants to work in a job that um, uh, either in New York or DC so he can keep continue doing his advocacy work. But anyhow, if you want to join either of those, I'll put my information on the chat. You email me and you can join that. And I'm going to, sorry, but I just had a shout out to Nicola and Allison. This group is amazing. Thank you so much. Thank and thank you, you very much. <laughs> thank you, thank Lorna. You, thank you, Lorna. And Julio Guzman, the Peruvian. Thank you, Emma. Uh, Felix, um, you have given us a, a wonderful news and you have made our day today. Uh, Thank you very much for your inspiration. Thank you very much for your messages. I have uh, only two things to say. First, uh, for I am in Washington DC right now. So I know that you know many people and maybe you have the resources, but uh, I want to let you know that I am here for you. If you need anything, I'm gonna be here. Uh, I already sent you my telephone number in the chat. Um, so please let me know if I can help. Uh, my question is is pretty pretty straightforward. What is the the most important lesson that you had in this experience, and what is the most important advice that you can give us to us fellows? The most important lesson is that you need to be deeply convinced of why you got into this. <laughs> uh, if you are not fully convinced, I, I will keep this you know very confidential. Boy, I saw many many people that I admire. And respect and i will continue to admire them on a personal level but they were broken mostly because they were not convinced of what they were doing i mean not to not to criticize uh other cellmates this i'm stepping here into very sensitive area because uh this experience is very very individual very personal but in my case as much as uh i don't want to i don't i don't want to play you know the macho attitude as much as i was hurting emotionally and physically I was deeply convinced that I was doing the right thing politically, that even prison was a political statement, that, that Ortega was paying a huge political price for having us there. And if I couldn't raise my voice in articles, my, 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 my radio show had been shut down, Our, the, the newspapers were shut down. So prison was a statement in itself. So you have to be deeply convinced uh, because Politics getting extremely nasty, you know, nasty. And if you're not convinced of what you're doing, you're going to have a really, really, really hard time. And the second part of your question, I would say family. You need to have, I think, you uh, uh, relationships in terms of uh, either it's your wife, daughter, mother, fathers. You have to have that family um, uh, um, uh, relationship very, very strong. I, I cannot find the English phrase for that but there's a saying about uh warriors going back to their tent after they are fighting you need that time if you're in your tent to, with, with your family uh and i think that the fact that berta and i went through personal challenges as a couple years before and those challenges made us very strong as a, as a couple uh that allowed me to be uh, in peace with myself and knowing that my daughter was okay that berta was okay I cannot imagine me being in prison and thinking that my marriage will be affected due to my arrest. But I knew that through challenges, our relationship was, was going to become stronger. I don't know if that helps, Julio, but that, at least that's that's the way I see it. 
So Jessica Feta, the Ecuadorian. Thank you, Emma, for making this space possible again with uh, Berta and, and, and Felix. Felix, I, I just want to put really um, here my, my, all my appreciation, my affection, but overall my uh, really uh, inspiration for your clarity of mind, for your strength, for your messages is really, really inspiring. So, um, my question, I really want to, to recognize also uh, Berta. Uh, and I want to, to ask her really, where did she get the strength to do to, to go around? It's not easy to get into the State Department. It's not easy to go uh, to go around, especially as a, as a woman. Um, so where did you get the strength? And, and really, and, and, and really all my recognition for your perseverance, for your for for your uh, also clarity for uh for having really your your north very clear where 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 it was Berta in um, Felix all my affection I am as uh, Berta as, as as Emma knows I am uh, at Yale so if I can help in any way uh, with Emma I'll be very happy I'm also spending a part of my time in in, in New York so if you come around here please call. Um, and I'll be happy to, to, to meet with you, to, to talk. I'll be part of that um, brainstorming group that, that uh, Lorna and Nicola are putting together. So happy to, to also help think in any way where your next steps could be. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Jessica. You, Jessica. Thank you, Jessica. Well, um, first of all, I will say that faith was my biggest strength. Um, I believe there is a higher purpose on everything we do. Um, so that would be like the place where I would go and just find um, hope and peace. Um, and then, of course, you know, having Alejandra asking for her dad every night. Um, we had the last time we, we saw Felix was three years ago. So she was one of my motivation on why I should, you know, fight back and be strong and, you know, sh show that we were doing everything we could to get Felix back to us. <clears throat> and third, I think um, just friends and family, people around me, um, ¿cómo se dice? Sosteniéndome. Supporting me. Supporting me when I thought I couldn't do things or when I, when I just felt it was so hard to keep going, someone will come and say something or, uh, and this is something that you know, you know, sometimes we, we didn't have how to pay the rent and someone came and just helped me with that. And so I think having people around me also um, just taught me that I was able to do those things that I, that I thought I couldn't before. And for me, it's been a really um, wonderful way, even painful, but a wonderful way to grow and to understand that I also have a voice that, um, you know, we, I didn't need anything else to do my job. I already had those skills and I didn't realize that. I thought I was so weak and, you know, scared. But for me, that was um, a, um, something that I gained. 
And last, let me tell you that we have been married for 15, uh, 17 years with Felix. So it's funny because at the end of the day, I realized that Felix has been training me during all these years through, through his own advocacy. So it was interesting for me to go to places and say, my husband, Felix Paradiago, was here three years ago. He was here two years ago. Even in, in um, different spaces, um, like forums, and I will give a speech and I will say, Felix was here. So I, I, every time I was going to do something for the advocacy, I remember what Felix have done before. So that helped me to deliver, you know, in, in moments where things were very, very hard. So next up, oh, sorry, after you, Felix. No, I was just going to say that that all the traveling that I was having well, at some point was a bit challenging for Berta and I. So I was not lying. I was truly advocating when I was traveling the world. I was not do only doing jujitsu with John. <laughs> no, but let me tell you something else. Felix mentioned about marriage because it's it's you know. I before I knew I loved Felix, um, but I always had this, um, you know, I was not comfortable with him spending so much time and work and letting us out, aside, you know, that was very something hard. But because I lived what he already had lived, and and I realized how hard it was and how important it was to have a voice out there saying what was going to happen, what was happening in Nicaragua. I just my admiration for Felix just grow, and my love for Felix. I think it's it comes to a point of, you know, maturity, uh, maturity, and it just changed my the way I see Felix as my husband and my partner and my friend. And I really appreciate appreciate that. So one of our commitment now is to, you know, work more closely. Um, for me, it's easier now to understand the love that he has for Nicaragua. Um, and I just see that there is a better future for us and, and for our commitment as a family. So next question is from Rita, who is Italian living in Panama. Felix Berta, que gusto. So happy to see you. Uh, Lorna and Fagundo, who were my Yellow Wolf fellow, were often talking about you. So even if we didn't meet in person, they really gave your voice and the voice of Berta during our beautiful experience in Yale. And thank you so much for sharing this space and thoughts. When you were talking, Felix, I remember of my one of my favorite books of Oriana Fallaci, A Man. And I have two questions. How you were counting the time, the days passing? And then another question. I have been working in Latin America for the last 18 years. If you close your eyes and you talk with your angel, in which year you will see a reflourished free Nicaragua? Thank you. Wow, Rita, those are, those are tough questions. I'll start for the second one. I don't know the time. I'm expecting that we're not betting everything on biology. <laughs> Ortega is 76 years old, and um, I don't think he uh, wants to uh, leave power. He's not thinking about a democratic transition. He's thinking about a political dynasty. So things are going to be very complicated. And it's unfortunate to say that 
I don't see an easy way out anytime soon, but uh, I think that we can find ways to make things better for Nicaraguans from a humanitarian perspective, while we find other long-term solutions in terms of democracy. So right now we have a humanitarian emergency when about 15% of the population has left you know, the country. We're a small country, but we are uh, creating a, a, a suffering, a, a massive number of Nicaraguans uh, are traveling or finding, finding ways to flee uh, the country. Uh, the second part of your question, how did I count it, uh, uh, the days? There were simple techniques. I mean, we, we knew that uh, when uh, we were given dinner about 5, 5.30 p.m. every day, so we knew that was the end of the day. And every day is just exactly the same to the next one. Sometimes we will count the days incorrectly, but I, I, we knew that we had family visits every 50 to 90 days. And uh, I would ask my sister, what day is today? And I was always on track. Some of, of my other cellmates say, oh, I, I thought that it was January the 12th. And you know, it's actually January 14th. So, so there was a two day margin of error, you know, but we kept on track. Thank you, Rita. And now we have Jovita who is Indian working in Georgia. Thank you, Emma. Just one comment and one question. Felix and Bloodbutter, thank you so much. Um, my comment was that, an honest confession, I knew very little about your country. And it was during the Yale reunion in October when there was three seats, three empty seats placed uh, at the reunion, one of which was to honor you and your absence in that reunion. That really shook me up so badly that I went back home and that very night started reading up so much on your work and your country that I, I, can, I can pretty much honestly say I know so much more than I, I do about the rest of South America. Uh, I mean, I, I learned a lot, so thank you. Um, thank you for what you do. I hope you will take the time to uh, heal mentally, physically, before you go and spend time with your family before you go back to full-time advocacy again. But my question for you is, if you do get to go back home and place you consider home, will this, um, will what will change about your advocacy work and your campaigning for presidency or uh, from this experience of imprisonment, will it, what will change about it? Thank you, Javita. And thank you particularly for, for raising a voice about the absence, uh, the temporary absence, because I'm faithful that we will see them free. Alexei Hakan as well. And once we uh, uh, um, go through this experience as former political prisoners, the um, issue of political prison for me uh, is deeply personal. So I, I like to devote part of my advocacy for uh, um, against political imprisonment as a tactic of, of authoritarian regimes. That's just a note. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that you uh, uh, raised that, that point. What would change in terms of... Uh, uh, my message, if I if I decide to go back into Nicaraguan uh, politics, first I think that I need to speak more about the conditions and about the perspectives of those that at some point supported the regime. In my case, I have been an anti-Ortega person all my life. Ortega was very very popular, uh, and so my voice against Ortega was not popular. You know, Ortega was perceived at some point. As a uh, as an authoritarian leader, not not necessarily a dictator, who was 
even supported by uh, by the private sector i had to to i had to get into trouble even with my business partners for my my, my political positions so the fact that i was so much anti sandinista anti ortega in a way affected the uh the the my message and my my point is that when we are anti something when we're against something the uh the message of what we stand for gets uh, ignored at some point so i i think that it's it's very important to to really pay attention to what we stand for and not necessarily to make clear what we are against because when we emphasize so much that we are against this against that to, uh makes you be perceived as a very polarized person and reconciliation for it to work needs to come from a more positive message. I thought I was doing that job. I thought that I was going to precisely by the fact that I've been very moderate and I've been very clear that my advocacy has been nonviolent. I thought I was very clear, but in highly divided societies, the message of reconciliation is fundamental. And that's something that I would like to, to work better in the future. So we have time for two more questions. And we have Angela from Colombia. Hola, Félix. Qué bueno verte a ti, Aberta. Hi to everyone. It's great to see you again. And I couldn't be there in October, but my question goes to, we are living a process today in Colombia in which even the government's position towards Ortega hasn't been so clear. So I believe what you just said is a good recommendation because my question was going to be, what do you recommend from us? Because we are on the risk of seeing liberties being uh, in a way shortened in Colombia and in a government position that it's, it's not a matter of being a, a, a government from a left origin or whatever. It's more a matter of how some of the decisions that we have been facing right now shows like a sort of a style of a leadership that is much more similar to a dictatorship than to a presidential regime. You know, we are not used to this. We we have been a country that we have been very polarized between two factions of politics. I am I'm personally have been a technocrat. I've worked with many different governments from different areas, but mainly in the development side. Um, but today, the, my real concern is that we have never faced the risk of our institutions. And today we feel we're facing that risk. In, in a sense that we don't have a government that it has a clear positions against dictators, for example, against Ortega. Just recently, our foreign affairs office uh, it condemned the situation in Nicaragua, but the presidential position has been completely different through all this time. And we have been seeing a trend that it's a similar trend to what you have been facing. That is many of the reforms and many of the uh, policy proposals had to do with, again, uh, giving all of the powers to the president. Many, we haven't faced that before. We have a, with our difficulties and with our problems, we have had a, a democracy in which you have three um, branches of government that control each other with all the difficulties that we have faced. But at this moment, we have been facing a government that all the proposals that they're making in legal reforms and everything tries to concentrate all the power again in the presidency. So 
this mixed with the, the, the position that they have shown internationally with regimes such as the Ortega regime. My question is mainly what is your suggestion for us? Because we, the ones that live in Colombia that has worked for Colombia all the time, uh, we really want to do, do it right because this, this is not a personal opposition. We don't, I don't have a personal opposition against anybody. But I do have a personal opposi uh, an opposition against having a, a sort of regime that becomes a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not even a matter of electoral polls. It's not even a matter of elections. It's also a matter of how the government works and how you concentrate just in pressing all the powers, which is what we've been, we are facing the risk of with the proposals that we're seeing today in Congress. Thank you, Angela. I'd like to say two things. First, in the case of Colombia, it's better late than never. So I think that the Colombian position is uh, it's something that I'm, I'm grateful because it comes mm -hmm. particularly from a, 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 a president, a government that Ortega thought was his supporter. So the fact Absolutely. that he's been rejected, even from the Latin American left, and he's been completely abandoned. No one in Latin America supports Ortega now. That, that's a great thing. And sometimes it's more powerful to hear that from previous supporters than the typical voices of the European Union, the United States, because it's very easy for these regimes to blame it, everything in the US. So that's my first point. My second point to your question, my sound, Angela, as a contradiction to my previous response. Previously, I said that if I had done something differently, I would be very careful polar polarization because I was always very strong on my anti-Ortega stand. However, I think that we need people that are very, candid and that are uh, those that give the early warnings mm -hmm. and sometimes we need radicals in the best of senses so in my error was that i became this early voice against ortega when, when it was not popular and i remained in that voice for a long time uh, uh when 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 a lot of people was already to move to the next phase and i think that i needed to acknowledge that i also needed to speak for the sandinista base Mm -hmm. uh, but in your case, I think that it's correct to have those very, very clear stands because the gray areas are the ones that, that gets you into trouble. So sometimes mm -hmm. being very candid, even if it's not a popular position, is necessary. And the okay. most difficult part in terms of leadership is having that flexibility, when to be a mm -hmm. radical, when to be, when to polarize is necessary. Sometimes mm -hmm. we need uh, uh, to have, to say things that are very, very unpopular, but sometimes we need to play, you know, the bad cop role. Uh, in mm -hmm. the case of Colombia, I welcome voices that are very strong in the sense that there's no such thing as a good dictator. There's no such thing okay. as a good authoritarian. We need voices like that. Thank you, Felix. Thank you. So our last, our last question is from Laszlo, who is Hungarian. But right now in Costa Rica, um, I'm meeting also other year, uh, fellows here. So, uh, Felix, so good to see you, brother. It's uh, I still remember your energy um, uh, from uh, from uh, back uh, at the reunions and uh, in the in the classroom and and uh, in the bar, um, and uh, it's so good to see you always on Facebook. And then, and then at one point, I was like, I haven't seen Felix on Facebook for a while, so I wonder what's going on, right? So I go to the go to your page and I see um uh, uh Alberta's messages like you know how many days of I'm like oh, like I still remember the feeling you know like oh shit this brother is in jail like like 
And so, so I just wanted to share that that you know I really was uh, was uh, well you were on my mind a lot you and and Alex you know uh, um, um, in Russia that uh, that uh, so brave to uh, to actually uh, um, um, to actually do as as you said to to have the conviction and to go and and uh, and do what you're called to do it's amazing and 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 I'm, I really was. Uh, um brought tear to my eye when you said that you got the message from Berta like okay it's time to go home now right <laughs> that's amazing so thank you so much for sharing your journey and uh and I'm with you um uh, in thoughts uh from uh, this uh our you know sort of boom still sort of uh, uh developing dictatorship in in Hungary we are still not there yet but I definitely but definitely we are on the same road. And I was wondering, like, what can, what can you do from the outside? Like, what's next for you in the, in the U.S.? What, because it's, it's uh, you know, Alexa, um, was, he was also out, out of the country and he went back with the, with, the, with the knowledge of he will be arrested on the airport, right? Um, um, uh, and, he's, and he's in this, uh, this crazy prison ever since. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's a tough situation. What, 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 um, how do you see it right now? How much you can share? Yes, uh, absolutely. Thank you for your question. First, um, uh, after, you know, I went back in 2019 knowing that I was going to be arrested as well. And, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, having gone through that personal experience, um, my understanding now is that at the, there are certain points for these kind of regimes in which pressure cannot can only be local. It needs to be international. So these type of networks are very helpful in helping us raise a voice, in giving us a platform to uh, reaching decision makers around the world that can that can um, uh, uh, help us in the advocacy. Because one thing I know is that dictators like to navigate outside of the radar. That's what dictators love. You know, they don't like to be on the radar. Precisely because when they are outside of the world attention, is when they can, you know, gain the the, the, the uh, terrain in, in in their in their plans. So that uh, that that thing uh, brings me to to my next point. Uh, uh, Berta and I are committed to Nicaragua, but we are also committed to our own self care, our own family, our daughter. So we are going to remain in the United States uh, uh, for for a while. Uh, Alejandra, it's our our priority. And I will continue to advocate uh, on the freedom of Nicaragua from new platforms. So I'm looking forward to devote my time to probably to academia, to think tanks. Um, I need a few days to strategize on that. And I welcome your ideas and support once we're ready for our next stage. Felix, thank you very much for spending this hour with us. It is wonderful to see you free. It's wonderful to see you back with Berta. And we look forward to you, Berta and Alejandra, coming up to visit us at Yale soon. So take care and much love from all the network. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.